Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's been a while since my last episode, but uh, this has been an insanely busy summer. It's kind of wild to say, but it might be the busiest summer of my entire career. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and happy and healthy, and hope your summer has been going well, too. Today, I am going to talk about processing on the way in. I got some questions about this via email, some people asking, what kind of things do I usually do, and is it really worth it? Is it worth it to invest in analog gear anymore? Is it something that, you know, you regret, right? Is it something that you find really helps? So we're going to talk about some of these questions and try to give you an idea of why I'm still a big believer in processing on the way in, even if it's subtle. So let's get started. So the first question is why? Why should we process things on the way in? When we've got plugins galore, we can always change things later. Why would you want to bake in EQ or compression or whatever on the way in? Well, to me, the biggest reason is to save time. Okay, that's a huge factor in this. Making records already takes a lot of time and budgets are getting smaller. Um, a lot of the bands I work with, I would say most of the bands I work with are unsigned or if they are signed, it's not necessarily to a big label. So they don't have a ton of money to make a record. They also don't have a lot of time to make a record. So the idea is the faster we can get a great sound and get it sounding, you know, as good as possible, the better. And in my mind, doing that on the way in is one of the fastest ways to do that because we can hear and respond to that tone live with no latency or no additional processing, no CPU power, none of that. And we can just get the sound, right? So that's the biggest reason. But of course that leads into the second reason, which is to get the tone closer to the final product as soon as possible. There are some sounds that just kind of have to have EQ to sound right. Not everything, but you know, sometimes just a direct microphone straight to a pre, straight to the interface is not all that inspiring. Sometimes part of the sound is adding a little bit of EQ. Sometimes it is cutting out a little bit of low mid or whatever. Because again, we've talked about this in the podcast before, like a lot of instruments will work as a solo instrument, but when you're trying to fit it into a mix with five other things, there's not room for everything. So you're probably going to have to make things a little smaller, taking out some low mids, taking out some lows, carving the sound up a little bit so that it takes up less room. Now, if you're doing a track that is piano vocal, you may not really have to do a lot of processing on the way in or at all, because there's all this room that you have to use. Now, you can still do processing on the way in, nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying it's a little easier when your arrangements are smaller. But when you know the production is gonna be large, you should kind of assume there's probably going to have to be some EQ, not necessarily for tonal shaping, but sometimes just for, you know, puzzle piecing, if you will, right? Like piecing everything together. You need to be able to fit everything in the mix. And to do that, you're going to have to make things smaller. Now, a third reason that you might argue to do processing on the way in is to get analog color, right? Now, I don't really know what that means anymore. You know, the definition has changed so much and people seem to have their own idea of what that means. To some people, that means distortion or saturation or it means making things dark or making things lo-fi or whatever. And that's not really how I think about it at all. 
The thing that I like about analog gear is that it naturally has a little bit of harmonic excitement involved because there's a little bit of saturation involved. Whether you're driving it that hard or not, I mean, even if you're just barely driving it, there's going to be a little bit of harmonic coloration, which will add a little bit of uh, brightness or aggressiveness or extra kind of mid-range energy, some sizzle, whatever. And if you push the gear really hard, then yeah, you can get some really cool saturation. Um, but, you know, you don't have to push it hard. And depending on the type of gear you're using, it might be designed for that or it might not. For example... A Millennia HV3C is an analog preamp, but it's super, super clean and has almost no distortion. So just because something is analog doesn't mean it's going to have a bunch of saturation involved. Likewise, a Stay Level or a 176, both of those are Veramu tube compressors, and those have a ton of color, a ton of saturation, almost too much for a lot of situations. They distort very easily. Now, when it's right, it's amazing. But when it's wrong, it's very wrong. Okay, so just keep that in mind, right? It's like just because it's analog doesn't mean it's going to be a certain thing. It's kind of like the argument of like to be, like is something to be. We talked about it on uh, on the Tone Words episode, right? Of like just because something is has tubes doesn't mean it's going to sound like X Y Z. You know, you can have super clean tube circuits. You can have really dirty tube circuits. Anyway, but probably the most important reason why I like to use processing on the way in is something that I'm going to be calling the Jack Joseph Puig principle. As many of you probably know Jack Joseph Puig. He's a very famous uh, pro audio guy, a uh, mixer, producer. And there's an interesting quote from him on an interview. I forget who it is. Maybe it's Dave Pensato interview, but he's said, he said something to the effect of the project should sound like a record at all times. Meaning when you're getting sounds in the room, it should sound like a record. When you're listening to it over the monitors and dialing in your signal chain, it should sound like a record. When you send the temp mix to the band, it should sound like a record. When you send the real mix to the band, it should sound like a record. The point being, at every point in the process, relative to itself, the music should sound awesome. And you should really be trying to make it sound great, always. Right? You don't want to be working on a project and just have to keep telling your clients like, oh, well, it'll sound better later. You know, like that's not very convincing. That's not like a trust building kind of statement. You know, uh, you want people to be about be excited about it all day long. Right. That's a great way to keep. And that's kind of like a producer tip, I guess. It's like, you know, you you want to keep the room excited. You want people to have positive energy not be like, ah, oh, I don't really know about that. That guitar sound's not really right. That snare sound's kind of weird. Uh, you know, you don't want that. You want people to be excited about it all day long. And part of your job as a producer is to make sure everyone in the room is happy. Now, of course, not everyone's going to be happy at all times. Some things are going to have to wait to the mix. Things like vocal editing, okay, you probably are not going to do that right on the spot. You might have to take a couple hours and do that or whatever, you know, but there are definitely things that you should be handling as soon as possible to make it sound like a record as soon as possible. So the next question I often get is, so is it really worth it? I mean, analog gear is expensive. Is it really worth it to invest in this stuff? And given those four reasons, to me personally, yes, it is worth it. It helps me save time. Again, it helps me get the tone closer on the way in and it keeps the room engaged and happy and, you know, it helps it sound like a record at all times. Now, 
some people might come back with, well, does it really have to be analog, though? Are you more talking about just processing? What if I have a universal audio interface? How does it compare to the plugins? Is it really worth it when compared to the options we have in the box? That's a much harder question to answer, and it's getting harder every year to answer that question because the plugins are getting better all the time. Do I think that the analog gear and the plugins sound identical? No. Do I think plugins are getting really, really good? Of course. I think plugins have pretty much nailed analog EQ, in my opinion. I mean, I've got analog EQs, a lot of them, and I can AB back and forth, and I can't really hear any difference. Now, I don't quite think plugins have nailed analog compression just yet. There are some that I think are really close. I think uh, Gregory Scott and the team at UBK and Kush, uh, they make some of the most amazing, convincing digital emulations, like the AR1 compressor. Amazing. It sounds like an analog compressor. I mean, it's really impressively good. And a lot of the UAD stuff is really good, you know, but does it sound exactly like the analog? <sighs> I mean... I have done comparisons between the 1176 and a real 1176 and the Universal Audio LA3 and my LA3 and the TubeTech and my TubeTech, and they are slightly different. And I think the biggest difference I hear is that the analog version seems to be dialed in a little bit easier. Like, it takes me less time to get a great sound, where I feel like the plug-in... Um, I have to kind of be a little more finicky with it, which is kind of a little unexpected. You would think the analog gear would be more finicky, but I feel like the plugin is a little more sensitive. I also feel like you can push the analog gear farther and it still sounds good. Like if you're just compressing a couple dB on each, they're going to sound almost the same. I've experienced it myself many times. If you're just tapping the meter, they're going to sound really, really similar. When you really dig into a compressor, when you really dig into, you know, an 1176 or an LA2, that's when you start to hear more of a difference between the plugin and the real thing. All of that being said, the plugins sound really good, and I use plugins all the time. I mix basically completely in the box, other than maybe a couple of things, uh, and I'm totally happy with it, right? I, I love mixing in the box. The workflow is unparalleled. I do not want to spend time doing analog recalls, but I do make use of a lot of analog gear on the way in. So another question I get is, do you always do it? Do you always process things on the way in? Of course not. I mean, there, there are some types of sounds and types of projects and types of songs where processing on the way in is just not really necessary, uh, or it's definitely not the right move, right? If you're doing something classical or jazz, you probably don't need a whole lot of processing on the way in. It's just a different kind of approach. It's different music. The instruments themselves are a lot more harmonically complex as is. Um, you know, having a horn section can be really harmonically complex. I, I guess my point is this, though. When I do need it, I use it. And we've talked about this on the show a little bit before about the whole idea of, like, having fear of doing something, right? And like, oh, I don't want to do too much. I'm, I'm afraid of adding processing on the way in, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't want to mess it up. I want everyone to go watch a video that Mix With The Masters put out called Tracking Live Drums with Chris Lord Algae. Okay? In about 10 minutes, you will see Chris Lord Algae dial in some really great rock drum sounds, and you'll see that he is not shy at all with EQ and compression. Okay? In some cases, he's adding like 8, 10... 
maybe more dB of EQ on things. Adding 10 dB of top end to snare and, you know, all this stuff, adding compression to room mics. And uh, he's even monitoring on his console with the SSL compressor on the drum bus. I mean, he's doing that stuff on the way in and, and you know, well, the monitoring from the SSL compressor is not recording it, you know, it's still recording individual channels. But my point is something you really need to take away from this video. And even if you haven't seen the video, you'll still be able to understand this. He is not shy at all with EQ and he is in an amazing studio. He's in Capitol, right? It's one of the best studios in the world. Capitol Studios with a great drummer, with a great kit, an amazing live room, and a vintage Neve console worth more than most of our homes. And he's still adding all that EQ, okay? It's really important to understand. It's not always gonna be that when you have better gear, you won't need EQ, okay? I, I kind of wish that that was the case sometimes, but it's really not most of the time. Like, again, maybe if you're doing classical or jazz or whatever, like, maybe you don't need a whole lot. But for most modern recordings, rock, pop, indie, country, a huge part of that sound is processing. And it's something that we have grown to love. Things like aggressive forward mid-range on on vocals and drums and aggressive compression on room mics. It's part of the sound of the music. It's something that has evolved over time. And again, if you ever read that uh, recording the Beatles book or whatever, and you read about how many times they ran through the Fairchild compressor and how much EQ they were adding, they were not subtle with this stuff. It wasn't like hi-fi, like, oh, we're not touching the EQ. They didn't care back then. They did whatever it took. So to think that, you know, EQ is for the weak. That's something I really challenge you to get out of your head, right? Like, obviously, we want the source to have the best possible sound. Obviously, we want to get a microphone that gets us as close as possible. But again, part of the sound of modern music is a processed sound. And yes, there's conflicting information online and in interviews and stuff because... There are many interviews with the greats, people like Al Schmidt, may he rest in peace, people like Elliot Shiner, people like, you know, these, these amazing engineers who have grown up making amazing records, and many of them will say something like, try to not use EQ. And I, I don't really think they're saying that they never, ever use EQ. I mean, even Al Schmidt on his Mix with the Masters video uses some EQ on the, on the vocal, I think, or the master bus or something. It's subtle, but still. It's not like he's using none. Um, and, and again, it's, it's more about, he's trying to stick to the philosophy of get it right at the source. And I think that's honorable. I think I, you know, I preach that all the time. I think that's a good philosophy, but that doesn't mean you, if you use EQ, then you're a bad engineer or you didn't do your job, right? It's something I have struggled with. It's something I have had to get over over the years because of course I'm always trying to get it right at the source. But there are some sounds, especially like snare drum. A snare drum is going to probably need extra top end added to it. It just probably will. A dynamic mic an inch away from a snare drum is just not that bright. It just doesn't sound like a modern snare. So same thing with a kick drum. A lot of times you're going to have to scoop out some, some low mids. Not every time, but a lot of times you're going to. And it's just part of the sound. There's a reason we like that sound. It's because it clears away that space for other things. It's irrelevant information in the grand scheme of the mix. Um, and if it needs to be relevant, if you're doing a John Bonham kind of thing, then that requires you to make compromises elsewhere. Maybe the bass needs to be a little bit scooped if the kick drum is not. You know what I mean? Uh, so 
I guess my point is this. You need to get over the idea that adding processing on the way in is some sort of failure or cop-out or weakness or, you know, well, if I was a better engineer, then I wouldn't have to do that or, you know, I'll just save it for the mix. Get over it, okay? I'm telling you now, real pros do it all the time, everywhere. Not only that, but they're not shy with it. (laughs) If you watch that video of CLA, you'll see what I mean. It is probably more than even I would add. But the end result sounds great. And I think it's really hard for anyone to argue with those results when they see, when they hear the final product and it sounds like pretty much like a finished drum sound. It's really hard to argue with. So again, check out the video. It's called Tracking Live Drums with Chris Sordalgy. Another question I often get about processing on the way in is what kind of processing do you do and what kind of processing do you try to avoid? That's a great question, okay? So things that I usually do, some EQ, some compression. I might drive the preamps or use some saturation. And every now and then I will use some transient designers. I have some 500 series SPL transient designers. I don't use them a lot, but every now and then on a kick drum or a snare drum if it needs it. Um, And that's really it. I don't print a whole bunch of other stuff. I don't, uh, you know, some, some processing I specifically try to avoid on the way in things like gates, uh, things like de-essers. Okay, I really try to avoid those because honestly, the plugins are better. They have look ahead. They have much more tweakability when it comes to like frequency selective side chains and you can do external side chains on these. I mean, there's a lot you can do with the plugins and they just sound better. I mean, I've had analog de-essers and they don't compete in my opinion. Um, another thing I try to avoid a lot of is steep or aggressive high pass and low pass filters okay i still will high pass filter things but probably not super high you know on a vocal for example i almost always high pass a vocal but we're talking like 50 hertz i really just do it to remove any sort of unnecessary room rumble or unnecessary like low vocal breath like puffs of air that might trigger the compress the compression in a weird way. I'm just using it for a little bit of taming down there. Same type thing. I might do a little bit of a high pass on overheads or on ride cymbal or hi-hat, but I'm not going up to 300 hertz or something. We're talking 40, 80. I don't think I would I don't think I've ever really put a high pass filter on the way in much above 100. I don't really see the need to do that. To me, High-pass filters and low-pass filters are for the extremes. They're not necessarily for uh, actually shaping the low end of a sound. Um, That's kind of my own personal opinion. It's something I've been working through lately. It's something I've been messing with. It's like trying to avoid too much filtering and instead just use shelves for the bottom and top. Um, High-pass filters and low-pass filters. I've actually got a whole show planned talking about these, but they have such drastic phase shift when you use them. And they're just, I don't know, they don't quite do the thing for me. So very often I'm using Neve style preamps. And so that means like 1081 or 1073 style. And a lot of times I'm using the first click on that high pass filter, which might be around 40, 50 Hertz. Um, On a 1081 style, it's going to be more like 27. But so it's probably the second click that I'll use on those. But my point is, I try not to do really any aggressive high pass or low pass. Now, one place I will sometimes do low pass filters is on uh, room mics that are too sizzly in the top end. 
But again, I won't do a lot. It's not like I'm low-pass filtering down to 5K or something. It's like maybe 15K, 10K, you know, just just to take that edge off the very, very top. Um, maybe try to simulate more of a ribbon mic top end rather than a clean condenser top end that goes all the way up to 20K. Another thing I try to avoid on the way in is really heavy compression or limiting. Okay, I will sometimes do it for certain sounds, like if I'm getting a crush mic for a drum kit on purpose, okay, I'll do heavy compression and limiting, but I very rarely will purposely go all the way. If I know I'm going to slam a vocal, for example, I'm probably not going to slam it right then. I will use some compression to tame it, but I probably won't slam it on the way in, mostly because that'll start to mess with the vocalist. They're not used to singing with that much compression. Now, they like how it sounds in the mix, but it can kind of mess with them on the way in because it's turning down all of their loud notes. And unless the rest of the mix is already kind of heavily compressed, they're going to get lost in the mix, right? So that's an interesting thing to bring up that kind of reminds me back of that Jack Joseph Puig quote is like, if you're at a stage in the mix where you're tracking vocals and the mix is like, kind of roughly done. Maybe you got a little bit of drum bus compression or whatever, but you haven't done all of your compression and saturation because you haven't mixed it yet. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to track vocals with gobs of compression because in context, that is wrong at the moment. Now, later it might be right, but in the moment, it's not right. So sometimes we're choosing processing based around, actually most of the time, you're choosing processing based around how the record sounds at that moment. And so, you know, that does require you to kind of adopt the philosophy of like, well, it should sound great at every moment, right? Like, because if you just are deciding, if you just decide, oh, I'm not going to process anything except for vocal, you're probably not going to be very bold on that vocal processing because compared to everything else in the mix, it will stick out like a sore thumb, right? Because it'll be all processed and compressed and EQ'd and everything else is raw, right? So it's you kind of have to go all in with it. You kind of have to commit like I'm going to process things or I'm not. Because if you only process, you know, one or two things, your ear is probably not going to like it. You know, you're going to think it stands out awkwardly or that you're doing too much because compared to the rest you are. Anyway, another thing I try to avoid on the way in is printing reverbs. I'm not a huge fan of pedal reverbs. I like spring reverbs, and every now and then there are some pedals I, I like. Um, but a lot of times, I don't mind printing delay pedals on guitar sounds as much as I mind reverb pedals. There's something about reverb pedals that just seems to strike my ear odd, and I just feel like the plugins are so much better at reverb. Another part of it is like you're squishing down this reverb sound into a guitar amp, which is then getting distorted, which is then going into a guitar speaker, which is then going into a mic. And that's like not hi-fi anymore. That's not like a good sounding reverb anymore. It's like a distorted reverb. Now, again, there are some sounds where that is absolutely right. And there are plenty of bands I have recorded where we do use reverb pedals on the way in. But that's something I generally would avoid. Like if I had the option and the guitarist is like, eh, the reverb is kind of, you know, hit or miss. Like, do you want it on or off? I would probably say off because I can add it later. But again, for certain sounds, for certain, especially indie rock, sometimes uh, reverb is a part of the guitar sound. And if you don't put it on, it doesn't sound right. So keep that in mind. That, that one's like a 
50-50, maybe 60-40. I, I, I will avoid it more often than, I, and, than not, but when it's right, it's right. So what kind of processing specifically do I do on the way in? Little disclaimer about this. Again, the most important thing is to make sure you get the source dialed in as good as possible. Make sure that the room sounds great and that you've chosen a microphone that's going to capture the source as close as possible and do the job and that your mic technique is appropriate for whatever you're using. I want to make a big disclaimer about that because I spend hours upon hours researching microphones and different techniques and I am always trying new stuff on drums, on vocals, on guitar. Like I'm always trying stuff to try to get a certain sound on the way in right? It's never just, oh, I always use this mic on this. I mean, yes, there are some that I use very often, but they're all subject to change, right? But I thought I would go through the list. And, you know, if I was tracking a band and you were to just ask me, okay, what are you going to do on kick? What are you going to do on snare? I'm just going to go down like kind of rapid fire and tell you my gut reaction to what I will probably do on the way in. Okay. So let's start with drums. Uh, kick drum. So I will generally process the inside mic a little bit differently than the outside mic if I do have two. I'm probably going to cut a little bit of low mid on the inside mic, but not scoop it all the way out. I don't like to do that. Um, if I need a really scooped sound, I'll use a mic like an Audix D6, uh, which starts out scooped, right? Um, but usually I'm using like a Telefunken M82, which is a lot flatter in the mid-range, but sometimes I'll just scoop it a little bit just to kind of tighten up that area. I probably won't boost any low end. I may boost top end if it needs it. Um, if you know, the drummer wants a clickier sound, but usually not a ton. I don't usually saturate kick drum, but I will sometimes compress kick drum. And I really like clean compressors for that. Something like a distressor on a low ratio or like a DBX or like an SSL style compressor or like a smart C2. On kick out, um, usually the only processing I do is kind of similar. I, I, I will maybe cut some low mid if necessary, maybe not. And I don't usually add any additional low end to it every now and then I might. But I will sometimes cut some some top end from it. I don't need the sort of cymbal bleed or ride cymbal bleed or snare bleed or whatever on that mic. And I'm not a huge fan of doing the uh, like the kick tunnel thing with the blanket. That's just a pain and it doesn't really help that much in my opinion. Um, sometimes it can, you know, depends on the session. But I will usually cut a little bit of top end from the kick outside mic just to tame any cymbal bleed or whatever. Couple dB or something, you know, usually a high shelf. Snare drum. Okay, so snare drum, I have these BAE mic pre's that I use religiously on the snare drum, and they sound really good to me. Uh, they're the BAE 1073Ds, and they have a selectable top end, so you can do 10, 12, or 16K. And so I'm usually going to boost a little bit of that tip top, you know, either one of those frequencies, 10, 12, or 16. And again, on a Neve, it's not really... It's not like it's a bell at 10K. It's a wide shelf. Okay, that's something to keep in mind is that most analog EQs, whether you're talking Neve, API, whatever, the cues on them, the bandwidth is really wide. So the number that it says may be misleading. I might also boost a little bit of 7K, 7K2 on the Neve midrange. Maybe not. Maybe it's a better move to actually cut some 700 or cut some of the 360. Just kind of depends on the snare drum sound. 
Um, but usually I'm going to be boosting a little bit of top end, uh, maybe some high mid. I um, often use a Telefunken M80 on the snare, and that mic tends to be a little bit crispy around 5K. Sometimes I will dial that out a little bit, but again, on an analog EQ, that that cue is really wide, so I can't really like notch it out or anything. Um, so I often will save that for the mix. Um, Telefunken also makes a mic called the M81, which is a little flatter overall. So you do have to add more EQ. However, it can be a little bit of a flatter template or starting point than an M80 sometimes, which is has a little bit more of a curve attached to it. I usually drive the preamp a little bit on the snare, not crushed or anything, but I usually will you know, get a little bit of saturation going. And I often will compress probably with a distressor. Doesn't need a whole lot, okay? Just just to tame it a little bit, just to, uh, you know, contain some of the peaks, make it, keep it snappy, but keep it controlled. Uh, distressor will also tend to darken things a little bit, I find, which is good and bad. Um, but that's another reason that I kind of bake in some top end on a snare is that if I am going to a distressor, it's probably going to darken it back a little bit. Um, but if I don't go to a distressor, I'm probably going to go to an 1176 or maybe a DBX if I want it real poppy and snappy, um, but probably not. Usually distressor or 1176. On snare bottom, um, I hate when snare bottom has too much mid-range, and I'm talking like 400 to 1K. It sounds really bad to me when it's like, Pah. Um it's kind of cool on brush drums, but on like actual, you know, snare drum, like hitting with a stick does not sound good to me. So usually all I do on snare bottom is cut out a little bit of that, either 360, 700, something like that. Again, doesn't have to be a lot, just enough to get rid of some of that weird boxy kind of sound. Overheads. So on overheads, really the only thing I tend to do is boost a little bit of top end. I will sometimes cut a little bit of low end, as I said. Just a touch. If I am mostly using the overheads as like cymbal mics, okay, I'll probably cut a little bit of low end. But if I'm using them as sort of overall picture of the kit, I probably won't. Also depends if I'm using ribbon mics or condensers, large diaphragms, small diaphragms. If I'm using ribbons, I'm probably going to add more top end than if I was using condensers. Um, I usually actually like a bell on that. I don't like a high shelf on, uh, on overhead. I typically like a bell Really wide bell, but uh, a bell no less. Usually around 10K, just to add a little sparkle to the cymbals, a little bit of clarity on the hi-hat, a little bit of air around the whole kit. And again, doesn't have to be a lot. A couple dB will often do it. Um, but again, depends on the mic. Toms are tricky. Toms, I would say, are the thing I struggle with most. And part of it is because toms are really difficult to tune. They're really sensitive to the type of head you're using. Uh, you know, clear head, coated head, single ply, double ply. And, you know, there's not really a wrong way to tune them. You can tune the top and bottom heads a little bit more equal. You can tune the bottom down. You can tune the bottom up. And they all slightly different sounds. And toms are a little more sensitive, I find, to tiny tuning differences. Where a snare, I feel like you can kind of get away with a little bit more. There are more lugs on a snare generally. It's a little easier to hold in tune. Uh, a tom is just, I don't know, toms are annoying and they're really tough to deal with, but if I am adding any processing at all, I specifically do not compress toms and that's because I don't want to bring up 
any of the bleed because Tom bleed is really annoying. And that's something I'm going to edit out. Um, but I specifically do not compress toms. And I also do not drive toms a whole lot on the preamp. I will give them maybe a tiny bit of juice, you know, maybe saturate the pre a tiny bit, but I really, really want to be careful about doing too much processing on toms because I want as blank of a slate as I can to work with on the way in. If I'm adding any EQ, usually just like maybe a low shelf, um, maybe a little bit of 4K, 5K, 6K, depending if I need a little bit more clarity. Um, sometimes I'll use an EQ that has some extra mid-range points and I'll pull out a little like 300, something like that, if it's gross. Toms can kind of get weird there sometimes, but sometimes it's really cool. Um, and again, it depends what the other bands are doing. Sometimes if you boost low end and mids and high mids, then you've effectively cut highs and low mids. You know what I mean? So it depends what the other bands are doing. But a lot of times I'm boosting somewhere around, I don't know, 5K and a low shelf at 100, something like that. Not really sure. Hi-hat and ride cymbal, usually the only thing I do on those is cut a bunch of low end out. Now, I might not use a high-pass filter. I might just use a shelf. Or I might do a combination of like cutting some low end and adding some top end. Kind of want to tilt the response of those. I don't want a bunch of crap bleeding into those. Uh, but again, I'm not going to high pass up to 400 or something on those. I, I might put a high pass on, but it's really just to clear up the absolutely unnecessary stuff down below 100 or whatever. Room mics. Okay, so room mics will probably get the most processing of any of the drum mics. And... A lot of times that's because of the compression, but in terms of EQ, you know, I will usually run a pretty clean preamp on the room mics. I, I like the a little bit more definition on the transient response when the mics are farther away. It helps to kind of keep them clear. I will add a little bit of EQ sometimes. Maybe it's a little bit of bottom, a little bit of top, maybe just a little bit of top, maybe some mid-range. Depends what room mics, right? Like if I'm using ribbon mics, then I'll probably add more top. If I'm using condensers, I might add a little bit of mid-range or, or bottom end. Uh, if I'm using a spaced pair, it might be different than if I'm doing an XY kind of thing. Uh, if they're up high, I might not have to add up any add any top end. I might be adding bottom. If they're down low in the room, it might be the opposite, right? It really depends where they're placed. After the EQ, I will usually go into a compressor of some kind. And my favorite compressor on drum room generally is a Chandler Zener. Now, this is a really fancy, expensive analog compressor, but it sounds amazing on room mics. And um, I run it fairly fast, but there's a catch to that, which is that this unit is generally a little slower. So fast on a Zener is n on a Chandler Zener is not like fast on a Distressor, okay? Um, but I, I think it's probably like, I don't know, 10 millisecond attack or something. Um, hundred millisecond release. I don't know. I'm not really sure. It's not labeled that way. So I just turn the knobs where they sound good. Um, and I will compress, you know, three, four, five, six DB, seven DB sometimes. I mean, I don't know. I, I, uh, will just, it, whatever works for the song, right? If, if it sounds really good to compress a lot then I'll compress a lot. If it doesn't, then I won't. Um, that's another misconception I think people have is that, you know, you just slam the room mics all the time. It's like, well, no, I mean, if it doesn't work for the beat, then it's not going to work. Like there's a, there's a sort certain rhythmic thing that happens when the compression is right on the room mics. And if it's not happening, 
then it's probably not going to be right. <laughs> um, and it's not going to work for every type of beat, every type of tempo, every type of drum sound. Um, but I usually will compress the room mics a bit. Um, there are other room mics I use. I also like uh, mono rooms. I like mono overheads. I like um, a PZM mic on the ceiling. I like... Oh, crush mics and other fun things like that, like an SM57 on the floor. And those will get all kinds of different types of processing. Um, much less shy on the EQ on those because, again, they're meant to be aggressive and, you know, crushed. So I might use an 1176. Oh, one thing I love doing is really pushing an 1176 hard with the gain reduction bypassed. So it's actually just turns into like it, it turns into like a distortion box rather than a compressor. And I love doing that on certain drum mics. You can try that out on the plugin, actually. If you have the, I think it's the anniversary edition of the 1176, uh, or maybe the revision A actually has it as well, where on the attack knob, you can set it to off and it will actually bypass the compression and you can drive the input and turn down the output and get distortion. Uh, it's one of my favorite sounding analog distortion sounds. Um, sounds great on vocals, sounds really good on drums. Uh, sounds really cool on snare. Cool to blend in parallel. Cool on its own. Whatever. Um, the only other mic I can think of really on drums to talk about is my OTK mic, uh, Over the Kick. Um, this is a mic that I use. A lot of other people use. You'll see it all over. You know, it's not my original idea necessarily. Mine's kind of adapted from something I saw somebody else do. Um, but a lot of times I will use a little bit of transient designer on that mic to give it a little more attack. And then I will follow that up with a compressor kind of squishing that back. And I, I like 1176 on that as well. And that mic to me is a glue mic, you know, that, that glues the whole kit together in sort of a mono package that is not distant. And that's what's special about it is that it's a glue mic that is not roomy. Okay, let's move on to bass. Now, bass is also pretty tricky because it's super simple in terms of signal path, but it's heavily dependent on the player and how good their bass is, how good their technique is, how old their strings are, all the above. Um, for me, I usually will split bass into a couple different channels, a couple different chains. Um, right now, I'm really liking the Mesa Subway Plus preamp, and that actually doesn't need to go into a mic pre. You can run that direct to your interface because it has that much output, and I do. Um, or I'll run it out of the Mesa into maybe a compressor and then straight into the interface. And so that does a little bit of EQ and, um, you know, then I'll run that into some compression. I very often take a straight, clean, bare-bones DI as a backup. I may, may or may not use it. I may heavily process it. I may mute it. But I will very often take that as well. And then I'll usually take some kind of amp sound, you know. So I might take, like... Um, a sans amp, or I might run it through a guitar amp, or I might run it through some pedals or a dark glass preamp or something. Um, really kind of depends. Uh, to me, if you only had, you know, one path and you're asking, what do I do to the bass? You're probably going to end up adding some top end. Uh, and when I say top end, I'm talking a bass top end, which is more, you know, 1K to 5K. And you might add a little bit of sub, right? Like, 20, 30, 40, 50 hertz, just down low to add a little bit of thickness to some of those low notes. Um, I really want to make sure that when the bass player hits their low E, I get a healthy amount of 40 hertz and not just all 80 hertz, 
You know what I mean? I don't want a bunch of second harmonic. I want a solid fundamental. Uh, and that can come from different things. It can come from where they're playing on the bass, what kind of pickups they've got. You know, so it's not always going to happen, right? That's one of the reasons we have different basses. And you try different basses and you see which one is doing the thing. Um, but in general, if you've got a good bass, especially if you've got an active bass with EQ on it, you shouldn't have to do a whole lot to bass on the way in. Um, I will usually, if I am compressing bass, I'll usually use a TubeTech CL1B or a Distressor. Um, those are kind of my favorite compressors on bass in the box or in analog. Uh, I also really like the Summit TLA100. Um, and I don't slam it or anything. I mean, I'll just use it to kind of control the bass, usually medium or low ratio, you know, two, three, four to one. Um, and I'll just use it to kind of control the bass, um, medium attack, something like that. Now, if it's a slap bass, I will probably use a pedal compressor and, and or I'll use a distressor set pretty fast. Uh, for slap bass, you kind of have to control the sound of those slaps. It's, it's almost a part of the sound at this point to have compression on slap bass. And, you know, every now and then the bassist has a compressor on their board. Uh, so I might use that. It just kind of depends. In terms of pedal compressors for bass, I really love the Keeley Compressor Pro, and I really love the um, Origin uh, Compact 76, 1176, what do they call it? Cali 76. They make a bass version that's really, really great, and I run that at 18 volts for a little bit extra headroom. But yeah, for bass, generally, I want a clean compressor. I don't want something that's adding a bunch of color necessarily. The tube tech is kind of as colored as I go on bass a lot of times. Now, if it's something that's really kind of retro and it's a more thin kind of honky, plunky bass sound, like P-Bass, you know, Temptations kind of bass sound, I might use my stay level. I might use, you know, a little bit more of a colored compressor, but in general, I don't want the... I don't want the bass to be colored that much on the way in. I want it to be kind of a pure bass sound. It gives me more to work with. Um, but I will usually add a little bit of compression to contain it because you never know what you're going to get with the bassists. You know, some bass players are super even and they don't need hardly any compression. Other bass players are kind of all over the map dynamically and they need a lot of compression. So I kind of split the difference and we'll just add, just add enough to kind of control it. If there's any stray stuff popping out, um, you know, I don't want it to be crazy, but it can be really helpful. Electric guitars. Uh, I very rarely will use outboard compression on distorted guitars. I will sometimes use them on clean guitars. I love distressors. I love, uh, 1176. I love LA3. And, uh, but most of the time for clean guitars that need compression, I use a pedal. I love guitar pedal compressors. They're cheap and there's tons of different varieties. Like I said, I love the Cali 76. I love the Keeley Compressor Pro. Probably my favorite pedal compressor is the Wampler Ego. Amazing pedal compressor and it has wet dry blend. So you can blend in the clean sound, the totally dry sound. Um, and you can also run them up to 18 volts on the newest versions, um, which helps keep the headroom. Make sure you're not going to clip it, clip it or anything. The uh, Keeley Compressor Plus, I think it's called. It's the, the smaller one. It's black and it has a white knob on there. Uh, that one's also great. I love the Retrosonic Compressor, which is a little bit more uh, kind of obvious, like Ross compression. 
there's a ton of great compressor pedals out there, and it's way cheaper than using up your 1176s or distressors on a guitar, clean guitar. Um, so I highly recommend getting into some compressors for bass and guitar, like pedals, because it's a lot cheaper than analog gear, and it can often accomplish the same goal. In terms of EQ, you know, I very rarely will saturate the preamp on bass or guitar. I usually keep those pretty clean. Uh, but I'm not shy about EQ if I need it. You know, I, I do try to get the sound right at the source. Um, one nice thing about electric guitar is that the amp has EQ on it, right? A lot of our, th you know, snare drums don't have EQ built in, but electric guitar amp does. So you can change to a different uh, EQ setting. You can pop on the bright switch. You can use a different cabinet or a different mic. There's a lot of things you can do on electric guitar to change the sound. You also have pedals and you've got knobs on the guitar itself. There's lots of things you can tweak before you actually have to tweak something in the analog domain, you know, on the pro audio side. But if I am going to do any EQ, probably the most common thing is uh, I love 1081s on guitars and I love cutting some 470, uh, just a little bit to cut some of that mud out of electric guitars. Sometimes it's a little lower. Sometimes it's in the 270 kind of region. Sometimes it's a little higher, more like 600. But oftentimes I'll just do a tiny little mid cut to kind of clear some room for the rest of the band. I might disengage that if I'm doing lead guitar, right? Like I want that to have a little bit more forward mids if I'm doing leads. But if I'm doing rhythm guitar, I will probably cut just a hair of mids, not much. And then I might do a high pass again, just for the lowest of low stuff, like maybe 50 hertz. Not trying to go up to 100 or anything, just like 50, just to clear away any potential weird low rumbly stuff. Uh, very rarely will low pass an electric guitar. Very rarely. If I do, it will be very subtle. Sometimes I'll add some top ends, but usually not. I almost never will add any bottom ends. Sometimes I will cut some, but usually if, like, if there's too much low end, you can move the microphone back an inch or two and it will really clean up your low end. I mean, when you're that close, proximity effect is really sensitive, right? So moving the mic an inch or two will make a big difference. And again, you've got EQ on the amp. So it's hard for me to justify doing a ton of EQ with a preamp when the amp's got it. You know, it usually sounds better to do it at the amp. But again, one thing that I like to do on the preamp, if I were to do just one EQ move, it would probably be cut just a little bit of mid-range on rhythm guitars. And if it's a lead, either leave it off or maybe even boost some like 600, 800, 1K on a lead guitar. Just kind of depends. Acoustic instruments. So this is interesting because this starts getting into the world of... Do you need to process them? Should you process them? I kind of avoid compression on a lot of acoustic instruments. I will sometimes use a tiny bit of it on acoustic guitar, on mandolin or banjo, especially if they're really plucky parts, you know what I mean, that need, need some control. And to be honest, my favorite compressor for acoustic instruments, it sounds crazy, is a distressor. But I run it on usually two to one or three to one, really low ratio, and I just barely will use it, you know, just to smooth out some of those high peaks if they're getting crazy on a banjo or an acoustic guitar or something like that. Or if it's a strumming part, you know, it's really only catching some of those high parts. Uh, it's not aggressive at all. A, a couple dB max. But in general, I, 
I'm not crazy about compressing acoustic guitar on the way in. It's a really sensitive instrument instrument to that. Again, I might high pass at 30, 40, 50 hertz, something just to clear away any rumble, but not much higher than that. I don't want to start getting up into the actual territory of the instrument's notes. You know what I mean? Like on a standard tuned electric guitar, a low E is around 80, 82 hertz, something like that. Uh, so I don't want to high pass at 82 hertz. I want to high pass below that. I don't actually want to touch the lowest possible note. Similarly, if I'm doing like an upright bass, I probably won't high pass at all because that goes much lower, right? And if I do high pass, it'll be like 20 or something, just, you know, just because to make me feel better. Um, but for the most part, the only EQ I will really do on an acoustic guitar on the way in, maybe add some high mids or top. I really like Poltec on acoustic instruments and, you know, Poltec's got quite a few mid-range choices all the way up to really high frequency choices, you know, 16K or 12K or 10K. And I like to keep the bandwidths really broad for acoustic instruments. And it's usually just an element of like, does it need a little bit of extra zing, a little bit of extra clarity, a little air. With acoustic instruments, the microphone is your friend. Really make sure you pick a microphone that's right for the job. Um, a lot of times, you know, for me, I, I actually really love 67s and many of the clones and variants of 67s on acoustic guitar, but I also love KM184s. I also love AKG 451s when I need a brighter sound. On mandolin, I love large diaphragm tube mics because it helps mandolins sound a lot bigger than they are. Um, really gives them a, a nice size that makes them not just sound like a tiny little instrument. Uh, typically a darker mic on mandolin as well. Banjo is tricky. Um, there's lots of different mics I like on banjo and other kind of folk instruments. Um, I like KM184s. I like ribbon mics on banjo. I like large diaphragm condensers as well. Um, I like FET 47s on banjo a lot. Um, that's a great banjo mic, in my opinion, because it's large diaphragm. It's got a little bit more thickness, but it's not a super bright large diaphragm. Uh, so yeah, FET 47 is probably my go-to on a banjo. Anyway, this is a, about outboard processing, right? Not, not microphones, but just kind of ranting about this now. In terms of processing, like I said, try to keep it light on acoustic instruments. I don't do a lot. Um, I may use, again, a subtle amount of compression. On upright bass, I will probably also run that to my tube tech. I really do like the tube tech on bass. Um, I might run the top mic on an upright bass. Like if I'm using a, a bottom mic and a top mic, like one for the fingerboard and one for the, you know, down by the bridge, I might run the top mic to a distressor and actually set that fast because if the bassist does any clicks or slaps against the fretboard, those can be really loud peaks. And so a distressor to kind of tame some of those back can be really helpful. But again, it's probably not even touching it for the majority of the performance. But if there's clicks going on, then it, it kind of tames those back a little bit. Uh, so not much on acoustic instruments. Um, if we move on to piano, piano is something I'm always, almost always going to add top into. Uh, there's something about pianos in me that, um, I, I, whether it's a real piano or a Nord or a sampled piano, I just find all of them to be too dark most of the time. Again, like I said in the intro earlier on in the show, like if you're dealing with a vocal piano track, you probably won't have to add gobs of top end to it. But 
if you're putting a piano in a in a band track, a lot of times they have to be really bright. And so I might add 10 dB of top end to a piano if necessary. Usually with a Poltec, the Poltec is really gentle for adding a bunch of air to something. Uh, and it's also really wide band. Um, so I might add a little bit of top end to a piano. Now, if I'm, you know, tracking live and I'm not quite positive what I'm going to do with the piano yet, I probably won't add 10 dB, but I'll, I might add three or four to, to the piano. Um, again, if it's a Nord or if it's a sample coming out of a laptop or something, I might ask them to just brighten it up there. Uh, or I'll run it into a Poltec style EQ and brighten it up myself. I usually do not compress piano on the way in, but if I do, um, I really love 1176s and I really love uh, SSL style compressors for piano as well. Oh, I also really like uh, 33609 or like the Chandler Zener. Um, not, f not crazy about Distressor on piano, oddly enough. It sounds a little strange to me. Well, it's actually not bad if you put in the high-pass detector and the high-frequency push. That's actually kind of nice on piano. Compression on piano is tricky. It, it often needs it, but if you screw it up, it's really bad. It just turns it into like a resonant mess. And that, that's really common for acoustic guitar, too. Like, if you screw up the compression on acoustic instruments, it turns it into a very weird-sounding thing. Whereas, like, if you go a little too far with the compression on your drums, it's like, eh. Who cares? You know what I mean? But you go a little too far on a, an acoustic guitar, everyone's going to hear that. It's not going to sound like an acoustic guitar. But I love the sound of compression on acoustic. I just don't really want to do that on the way in. And piano is kind of the same thing. Last time I did a live tracked thing where we had piano uh, from a Nord, I think I ran to my API EQ, adding a little bit of top end, and then I ran into my Smart C2 compressor tiny bit of compression just to control it if he went up for a riff or you know a little lead part if there was any high frequency stuff that was poking through and getting really loud it would kind of tame back some of that so that's probably all i would do on most acoustic instruments now vocals this is the one you might have come here for <laughs> uh vocals are interesting because i almost always will compress vocals on the way in but i very rarely do lots of eq on vocals i'm usually doing a high pass filter and then maybe maybe adding a little bit of air on top like really high 10k 16k something like that and depending on the vocalist i might might do a little bit of like a mid-range push but usually not i usually try to keep the eq on a vocal pretty tame and spend the majority of my time finding the right mic for them. I will go to great lengths to find the right mic for a vocalist. And some of it is like a multi-year process of like working with the same client. And every time they come to record, we try a couple different mics. And it can be really exhausting and it can be time consuming, but it's really worth it to, to get the right mic for the vocalist. And sometimes it's a mic that you wouldn't expect at all. Certain vocalists really need a big, fat-sounding microphone, and other vocalists really need kind of a thinner-sounding microphone, thinner, brighter mic. So I highly recommend spending the time trying to get the right mic for them. And if you have a lot of options, then great. If you don't, just be aware that that's, a, that's one of the things that I will spend more time getting the right mic on than probably anything else. You know, I might swap out a snare mic or a kick mic if it's not working for me, 
but I probably won't try six microphones on those, you know, but on a vocal, I might, I might try five or six different mics on a vocalist. No problem. Once I got the right mic, like I said, I will probably just do a little bit of a high pass, maybe 50 Hertz, 60 Hertz, something like that. Might add a little bit of top end, might not. Never will low pass a vocal ever. That's kind of a cardinal sin in my book. I don't ever want to remove any air that exists on a, on a vocal track. Um, I can always filter it later if I need it, but I almost, I can't imagine a situation where I'd want to do that. Um, I've got the wrong mic if I have too much 10K, you know? Compression, I usually will use my tube tech. I love the tube tech uh, for most vocalists, but every now and then I will go to a distressor. I love distressors on background vocals. I love 1176s on rock vocalists and punk vocalists and hip-hop vocalists. But I also love the tube tech on on those as well. If I need something really fast responding, you know, like punk vocals or metal or something, I'll usually use 1176 or distressor. Every now and then, if the vocalist is kind of uber dynamic, I will use two compressors on the way in, and I will use something like my Inward Connections Brute uh, to kind of level it out, uh, almost like fader ride it, and then run into the tube tech. Uh, or I might go the other way around, go tube tech into the Opt 1A, uh, or the Brute, I should say. I will sometimes run to my stay level if I want a more colored, kind of large vocal sound. But a lot of times I'll reserve that for the mix. If I, if I want to run something to it, I'll, I'll do that in the mix. Um, how much compression? Well, you know, I try not to just slam it the whole time, but I also don't want it to be doing nothing, because what's the point? I mean, what's the point of... I mean, sure, you'll get a little bit of coloration, but hardly any. I mean, it again, it really depends how dynamic the vocalist is. And it also depends if I'm riding the gain of the mic preamp, which sometimes you have to do. Sometimes you have to, you know, when they're singing in the verse, you have to bump up the gain a couple dB. And when they sing the chorus, you bump it down. And you're playing that live, at least I do, on the way in. Um, you know, and maybe they're doing it section by section. And if that's the case, then, you know, you just stop and do all the verses, set your preamp gain, do all the choruses, set your preamp gain, right? Um, and a lot of times that's what you have to do to get to the sweet spot on the preamp for vocals. When they're singing, it depends. Like a lot of singers, they write different ways, you know? they Some singers will write where they're singing low stuff in the verse, it's really quiet, and then they are screaming balls to the wall in the chorus. So you, you really got to take notice of what's happening dynamically uh, and that will inform you of how to set your preamp and what type of compression to use. Uh, and if you do want to use compression, sometimes you have to ride the gain um, because that's really the only way to make sure you're not going to blow up the compressor. And I don't mean like break it, but I mean like tons of gain reduction on the big note and that it's not, you know, doing nothing in the verse, right? So... That's something really important to consider. But if I didn't have that ability to ride the gain as I'm recording vocals, I would probably just use the tube tech and set it mildly and, you know, let it get 5 dB max, something like that, on some of the loud stuff. It's a pretty transparent compressor in the grand scheme, so that's not really that much. I can always add more later. And I might actually split the vocal to a different channel and heavily, heavily compress the split and not compress the dry at all. That's another thing that I do quite a, quite a bit, is record two channels on vocals. And it's not two mics, it's a split from the mic pre. So I EQ it on the mic pre, high pass it a little bit, maybe add some air, split it at the patch bay, channel goes to a compressor, the other goes straight to the interface. And I can 
blend those. I can send some of the compressed vocal to the vocalist if that helps them, helps them hear themselves a little bit better. I can do whatever I want, and worst case, I'll just delete it and reprocess the clean vocal. Just a couple of other things on this list. Uh, backing vocals are generally very similar, but like I said, I am more inclined to uh, use a faster, slightly darker compressor on background vocals to kind of tuck them back in the mix a little bit. Uh, so I love distressors on backing vocals for that reason. It really kind of helps contain them and make them kind of just lock in place behind the lead vocal. And like I said, it will darken them up a little bit, uh, and that's really nice. Um, I usually will set them faster than I might set the lead vocal compressor, for example. Right? So, like, let's say I only had a distressor, I would probably set it a little bit slower for the lead and a little bit faster for the backing. Right? That's what I mean by that. Strings, I don't usually do any processing on those except for maybe a high pass and a little bit of high frequency lift if necessary. Again, kind of like the acoustic instrument thing. Depends on the mic. It really does depend. If I'm using a ribbon mic on strings, okay, I might add a little bit of top end. If I'm using a condenser on strings, I probably won't add any top end. In fact, I might even be tempted to cut some. I almost never will compress strings. Horns, I will sometimes compress. Pretty rarely heavy EQ on horns, maybe just a high pass. You know, a lot of times horns are really bright and aggressive as is, especially if you're using like dynamic mics on horns, those are really bright for horns. They sound great sometimes for kind of that funk, real bright horn sound. Uh, if you're using ribbons, you know, I don't know. I usually, I very rarely do that much EQ on horns. Uh, again, maybe just a high pass, but I will sometimes add some compression, something from Distressor or 1176, something fast. Um, and it's really only to contain some of those stabs because horns can be insanely dynamic and containing that sort of thing, uh, is, is important. You don't want to clip anything and, uh, that can be really helpful, but I don't default to it, you know, only if I really need it. And the only other thing on my list is synths. Um, very rarely will do much processing on synths. I might high pass it, you know, again, 40 hertz, 50 hertz, something low, just to tame any weird stuff that might exist down there. I might brighten it up, but a lot of times you can do that on the synth itself, you know? Um, synths are very easy to EQ because they're all synth, they're synthesis, right? Like it's all generated frequencies. So they're usually pretty easy to process, even in extreme ways. So if I need to process it heavily, I will in the mix. But a lot of times you're kind of like live processing it as you're creating the sound, you know, um, you're, you're EQing it on the synth by, you know, adjusting the filters or whatever. And it's kind of like, well, I just do it there. You know, I probably will add, you know, if I were to add some EQ, I'd probably do it on a Neve. Uh, and I'd probably add a little bit of 7k or I'd add a little bit of, you know, the 12k shelf just to add a little bit of sparkle on top or buzz if I need it. Otherwise, probably not much. Um, synths are pretty easy to work with. So hopefully that is helpful with giving you an idea of what types of things I do on the way in. It probably doesn't cover everything I do or have done. 
certainly not. I mean, I didn't even really talk about saturation on things like overheads, which I sometimes do. I didn't talk about saturation on room mics, which I sometimes do. Even though I usually prefer a clean preamp, I sometimes don't. You know, it's one of those things where this whole episode could kind of be like, well, it depends. You know, it's a classic audio problem where people want answers. And if I'm being really honest, I will tell them it depends. That's just not an answer they always want to hear. So another common question I get about analog gear is, okay, well, you've convinced me I want to get into analog gear. What should I buy? Uh, First things first, you will probably need to get a patch bay if you're starting to get into the analog gear game. You don't have to get something crazy. I really like the Samson S-Patch Plus. It's cheap. It's quarter inch. It's simple. And it does the job. Uh, But it just makes life a lot easier if you've got a patch bay to patch in things rather than having to plug them in and out. You'll never want to use your gear if you're constantly plugging it in, you know, plugging it in the back and having to reach around the rack. You'll never want to use it. It'll be a bother. So don't do that to yourself. Okay, get a patch bay. It'll make your life easier. So if I were to recommend a good starting place for any of you out there, I would recommend starting with two really good channel strips. So when I say channel strip, I mean preamp EQ. Now, this can be API, Neve, BAE, uh, Heritage, AML, uh, A-Designs. I mean, there's a a million of them out there. I think one of the best deals on the market right now are the Heritage HA81s. They're a 1081-style EQ with a 1073-style preamp, and they're like $1,200, which believe me, is crazy for what you're getting. Four-band EQ with high-pass and low-pass, great-sounding preamp, has a DI on the front. That's a really good deal, folks. If you're not familiar with it, like, trust me, that's a really good deal. Heritage HA81 is what that is called. Um, You can buy them at Vintage King or probably Sweetwater, a number of places. Uh, Another great option is the AML Easy 1073, which you can get for 500 series. Um, also really good price, uh, for those and sound really good. And again, very simple EQ. It's not crazy. You're not going to do, you know, any surgical cuts with it or anything, but it's enough to allow you to add a little top, add a little bottom, cut some mids, boost some mids, whatever. That's most of what I'm looking for when I'm tracking. I'm just doing some general shaping. I'm not trying to like fix drastic problems. Cause if I'm, if I have a drastic problem, I need to fix it at the source. This is to make my life easier in the mix because I'm probably going to have to brighten up that snare. I'm probably going to have to brighten up that ribbon mic. I'm probably going to have to high pass that vocal. You know what I mean? Like it saves that extra 10 or 15 seconds on every single mic. And that makes my life a lot easier. And it sounds better, you know? Um, After you get a solid pair of channel strips and you feel comfortable maybe adding some EQ into your workflow, then I would recommend getting a couple compressors. It's really hard for me to recommend anything other than a distressor for your first analog compressor. It's just a Swiss army knife of a tool. I mean, it it will really work on everything. Is it going to be the most amazing compressor you've ever heard on every single source? No, but it's a super versatile tool. It'll work on drums. It'll work on electric guitars. It'll work on vocals. It'll work on acoustic guitars. It'll work on percussion. It'll work on bass. I mean, it'll work on anything. Um, Like I said, beware, it does have a tendency to kind of darken or smooth things over a little bit, which is great for a lot of things. For some other things, you might not want that. As you continue upgrading, I would recommend getting an 1176 of some kind, and there are a million different clones of those. Hairball makes them, and Warm Audio makes them. 
Clark Technic makes them. I think the probably the best sounding ones on the market that aren't crazy expensive are the Audioscape clones. They make really great clones of the 1176s and of the LA2s and of a quite a few pieces of gear actually. They're a little hard to come by, but Audioscape makes great clones. Um, that would be my third recommendation is getting some sort of optical compressor. You could get a tube tech or you could get an LA2 or an LA3. You get some 500 series units. They make various, you know, various 500 series optical compressors. You know, me personally, I really love the tube tech because it has variable attack and release and it has variable ratio. Makes it a lot more versatile than LA2. As much as I love an LA2 in the right situation, you know, the tube tech is just really versatile. It's one of the best pieces of gear I've ever owned. I mean, I have had it for probably 10 years now and it's rock solid. I love the tube tech and vocalists generally like how it sounds in their voice. I use it pretty much every vocal session and have basically no problems. I mean, it's really fantastic. And then I would say if you want to venture out a little bit more, you might consider getting like a more heavily com- a, a more heavily colored compressor, something like a Manly Veramue or a Stay Level or a, a 176 or even like a Chandler Zener or some kind of like diode bridge style compressor that's a little bit more aggressive. Those can be really cool for adding a, you know a notable analog color to things as opposed to like just I'm doing this for some light control or some compression. This is like, I'm really getting some benefits of the tubes, of the transformers, of the circuitry in here. Uh, These are very aggressive, but very useful compressors. And those types of compressors, I also find, are not really close in the box yet. You know, Veramuse style, like Fairchild is Veramuse style compressor. Uh, The 176, it's just not there yet. Um, I think they're getting really close on solid state units. I think they're getting fairly close on optical compressors, but Veramu tube compressors, not quite in my opinion. Okay. Before I leave you, I just have a couple other tips to keep in mind when it comes to processing on the way in. Number one, uh, if you're afraid of screwing something up, just don't do it. You know, I'm not saying that you have to do this. Uh, if it really does freak you out about screwing something up, don't do it right? Um, When in doubt, you can consider splitting the channel and processing one and recording a dry version as well. The reason I don't really like that is because it starts to add up really quick how many channels you have. You know, if you (laughs) did that for guitar and for vocals and for bass and whatever, I mean, it starts to add up really quick, but it is an option. Um, Especially good if you're new to it and you're kind of freaking out, you're not really sure if you're going to screw it up or not. That's a great in-between option where you still record your dry version you split it at the patch bay or you split it using some sort of transformer splitter. There's a million different ways to do it. Um, and then you process one and record the dry version as well. And that will, you know, let you get your feet wet, get your bearings and not get too freaked out by the whole thing. Like you're going to ruin a lead vocal. Another thing to keep in mind is that if you're recording for somebody else, like you're recording tracks for another producer or for another engineer, you're doing satellite tracks or a band comes in to record, but they're taking the tracks to someone else. It's really important to kind of get a vibe for do they want EQ and compression on the way in or do they expect you to leave it raw? Is there a producer involved? If there is, you probably should have a conversation with them like, hey, do you want EQ and compression on the way in? And maybe they'll be like, go for it. Be aggressive. Do what you think is right. And 
other times they're like, please don't do anything. It's like, okay. You know, like you really don't want to misread that situation because that becomes more of like a, well, we didn't get what we paid for kind of situation. Not, that's more than just like you overcompress the vocal a little, you know, that, that becomes like a bigger problem. So always be aware of that. Like know who's in the team, know what's going on. Where are these tracks going to go? Are you producing? Is somebody else producing? And if so, you know, get a feel for that. And finally, you know, I know this stuff is expensive. I know it's hard to justify sometimes. I know that not everybody is going to run out and go buy analog gear after hearing this podcast. But, you know, good analog gear is built to last. If you buy nice, you will not have to buy twice. You know, I've had most of these pieces, I mean, for eight, eight, nine, ten, eleven years they work great. I've had almost no problems. I've had very little maintenance issues with any of my gear. The only issues I've actually had have been with preamps. Um, I don't actually think I've had any issues with any outboard piece other than the occasional light bulb goes out or uh, the view meter is kind of sketchy and doesn't quite work. That doesn't really count to me. It's like the unit still works. It's a cosmetic thing. It's like the meter doesn't really you know, it doesn't calibrate quite accurately or the light doesn't come on. I'll just, I'll either replace the bulb, replace the meter. You know, it doesn't affect the performance of the unit. Uh, oh no, no, no. I take that back. I did actually have to send in my, my LA three, which is a vintage unit, uh, from like the seventies. I had to send that in to get recapped because, um, it was starting to get pretty noisy. Uh, but you know, it's a 50, 60-year-old piece of gear, something like that. And so it's like, well, that's actually pretty good that that's the only piece of gear I've actually ever had to send in. So they don't need gobs of maintenance. You know, they're they're made well, generally. And again, if you want to use plugins, if you want to, if you're a universal audio person and you've got stuff on the way in, you know, go for it, try it. But the biggest part of all of this is regardless of what you use, whether it's analog or UAD or, or whatever it may be, you know, Try to find pieces that you know and trust and can trust. Plugins can actually really help with that kind of auditioning, like try before you buy. Um, don't try to like buy and sell a bunch of stuff back and forth. Like buy nice stuff, learn how to use it, and keep it, right? Like it takes some time to get used to. It takes some time to learn these pieces and what their strengths are and the different kinds of curves you can get with them by boosting or cutting. Um, again, I do not believe in the myth that boosting is worse than cutting. They're both equally fine. They shift the phase in identical ways, just the opposite direction. Okay. It's a total myth. Got a YouTube video about that if you haven't seen it. Um, but I very often will boost and cut, you know, wherever I feel like I need to. Right. So don't be afraid of that. Um, but my point is with analog gear, because the curves are generally so wide, you know, Boosting and cutting do some pretty wide, drastic things, and how those curves interact can be really interesting, and you kind of have to learn it. There's a bit of a learning curve to it. So anyway, I hope this has given you some things to consider. I hope that you will consider tracking with processing. It's not scary. I know it seems scary up front, but it's really not. It, it can save you a lot of time in the mix. I would say, you know, it, comparing something that was recorded totally dry, like bone dry, versus something that had processing on the way in, I mean, it might save me legitimately two hours 
in a mix. I mean, that much. I'm not exaggerating. It might save me hours in the mix because just doing those basic kind of shaping things, those basic cleanup things, not only gives me a better idea of what it's supposed to sound like as soon as I pull up the tracks, but that stuff is already taken care of. You know, I don't have to brighten up that ribbon mic because it's already brightened. And now I can just focus on fitting it in the mix. I don't have to worry about taming that snare drum because it's already been compressed a little bit. Maybe I'll add some more. Maybe I won't. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to maybe crush the room mic because they've already been crushed a little bit. You know, it, it really does save me time. I don't mind it when I get tracks from people that have been recorded aggressively. I kind of like when my hands are tied because it forces me to listen to their vision, right? That's another dangerous thing about not recording with anything is that it's not really, it's very non-committal, you know? You know, it's not saying anything. It's not saying like, this is what the overheads are supposed to sound like. It's just saying, well, here's a clean overhead sound, you know? And sure, you would hope that you picked the right mics for the job and everything, but if you're committed to processing some of these things on the way in uh, with some EQ or compression, it helps everyone involved, other mixers, producers, the band, the artists themselves, hear it a little bit more like it's supposed to be or going to be, right? So hope this has given you some things to consider. Hope you continue to have a good summer. I will try to come out with more episodes soon. I've got some great episodes planned. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or episode topic suggestions, Send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Really helps the podcast. Uh, you're going to really enjoy the quick tips as well that are exclusive for Patreon members. And as always, check out recordingloungepodcast.com for a lot more information. I'll talk to you next time. See ya.